Welcome to the One Haas Podcast. My name is Sean Lee, and today we're joined by our very own Dean Ann Harrison of the Haas School of Business. She's our 15th Dean and a renowned economist who has dedicated her career to creating inclusive and sustainable policies in development economics, international trade, and global labor markets. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So Dean Harrison, I'm sure our listeners are just dying to hear and learn more about your background. You know, we know so much about you from your speeches at Haas, but really, you know, we want to hear about your your origin story. Well, let's see. My father grew up in the Bronx in New York City and uh, went to all these wonderful public schools. He went to Stuyvesant, which is a great public high school. And then he went to Cooper Union. And then he decided he wanted to get a PhD in chemical engineering. And armed with the GI Bill, he was able to get his PhD in France because he also wanted to learn to speak perfect French. And he went off to France and once a month he would go to the American embassy to collect his GI Bill check, Uh paid all his expenses. And there he met this nice French girl named Jackie Menez, and they fell in love and got married. And that's how I ended up being a dual citizen. I was born in France. My first language was French. And so that's my background. How long did you stay in France for? How long did you grow up there for? Not that long, actually. I came here when I was two, but we were very connected to France. So every other summer, my mother would take us back to Brittany, which is in the northwest of France, traditionally a somewhat poor, heavily agricultural region. And we would go and spend every other summer there. And sometimes we would go see relatives in the farms. And I remember one farm we visited with some relatives and I needed to use the bathroom. And I asked where the bathroom was and pointed to the fields. There were no bathrooms. <laughs> Go to the field, right? <laughs> I had some relatives who raised cows and pigs. And I had one relative with a chicken farm, you know, thousands of baby chicks. That was wild. Wow. And so where did you guys live when you guys moved back to the States? We came directly here to the Bay Area to Penal, which is 15 minutes from Berkeley in the 60s. So I would hang out with my parents on Telegraph Avenue in the 60s. And we would visit Berkeley when I was a small child. So I've always known Berkeley ever since I was small. I'm really curious, you know, why your parents moved to to the West Coast, even though he is from the East Coast originally, right? Yeah, that's a great question. Before they got married, they tried a stint on the East Coast. In fact, they lived in New Jersey. My father is a chemist. He's a research chemist. Uh, So he worked for Mobile. And my mother absolutely hated the weather on the East Coast. In fact, she just hated the East Coast, period. So eventually they went back to France. They had me. They had my brother. And the East Coast had not worked for them. And so my father was offered a job at Chevron Research in California. And they decided to try California, and they fell in love with it and never looked back. (laughs) That's amazing. So, uh, you know, I'm starting to hear a little bit about the influences in what shaped you, right? And and the influence that shapes each and every one of us, especially our childhood. How did you come to pick the field of economics? Yeah, that's a 
Great question. I would say economics for me was an accident. I think my interest in international issues clearly came from the fact that my mother was French and that I spent a lot of my childhood growing up between cultures and between religions too, because my parents were different religions. So I was very outward focused, but economics was really an accident. What happened is, and this actually is part of my Berkeley heritage. When I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, I started off as a history major. And actually I changed my major many times. I think I started off as a math major and then then eventually I made my way to history. Berkeley has a great history department. It's one of the best in the whole world. And I just loved it. I studied French history. But then one summer I did Cal in Sacramento. They had a summer internship program and I got to work for the speaker pro tem in Sacramento. And I went there for the summer and all anyone talked about the entire summer was economics. That's all that mattered. And suddenly I realized that I'd kind of missed the boat as to what really matters in the real world. History was fascinating and everything, but what the politicians in Sacramento really cared about was economics. I landed on a great professor named Richard Such and fell in love with the field. So I added economics as a second major. And what did you do with that degree after uh, Berkeley? So I thought I was going to become a lawyer and, you know, go and work pro bono and do all these things and save the world. So I applied to 10 law schools. And while I was applying to law school, I went and worked for Kaiser as a health economist. Mm -hmm. And then one of my mentors at Berkeley, Leo Simon, convinced me to try one or two PhD programs. So on a complete whim, I applied to one or two PhD programs, both Berkeley and Princeton, just two. Mm -hmm. And then what happened is while I was working at Kaiser, I fell in love with working with data and doing research, really thinking about policy issues and data. And the previous summer, I'd also tried working for a lawyer in Oakland, and I'd hated that. And then I got into all these law schools, and I got into the economics programs, and then I had to decide what to do with the rest of my life. (laughs) I didn't know what to do, so I hedged. So I got into Yale Law School, so I deferred Yale said, okay, I'll come there in two years. For now, I'll go to Princeton because they're paying my way. And I went off to Princeton. And then after two years of coursework at Princeton, I was so exhausted. There was no way I was ever going to make it to law school. So I chucked the law, never went back um, and stayed as an economist. But it was a tough decision because I, I was interested in making the world a better place. And I could see that a lot of people and certainly in politics have law backgrounds, right? And so economics was not quite the typical background for somebody who wants to make the world a better place. But I started in economics and I love it. I find it fascinating. What was your uh, PhD dissertation on? So my area of research is international trade. So my dissertation was on how changes in different kinds of trade policy or trade regimes affect how firms behave and what happens to just normal working people. So I'm interested in what firms do to deal with more competition from globalization, but I'm also interested in what happens to people who work in those firms. Hmm. That leads into a question that I had. 
when I was looking through a background in international trade and taking into context our current economic environment as a result of the pandemic and even prior to the pandemic you know we were seeing an increasing trend in global protectionism policies what are some of the impacts that you foresee of such policies yeah so it does look as if the trend towards being more open, more global has suddenly stalled. If you take as a measure of how global the world is, if you take as a measure the share of trade in GDP, which in a country like the United States is not that high, it's around 20%, but in a very small open economy like Singapore, it could be Singapore's whole economy is about trade. China is very open to trade. So if you look at what happened to that, it was quite low 100 years ago. And it went to a really low point during the 1930s when countries just shut off to each other and exacerbated all the problems that were going on. And then since World War II, we've gradually opened up and it's been a very steady increase and until about 2008, right before the financial crisis, when the countries were as open as they'd ever been, very open to trade. China had just become incredibly open. The US was steadily increasing as well. Big, sharp reduction, 2008, 2009, full recovery, a V-shaped recovery in global trade. And ever since like 2012, 2013, kind of we've stalled in opening up to trade. and. This pandemic is going to accelerate that. We're seeing that countries, in particular our country, has been imposing restrictions on other countries. And so what we're seeing is a stalling, a reversal of this long-term trend towards being more open in global markets that basically started at the end of World War II. Do you see or do you feel that some of these actions or reactions of global protectionism policies as a correction of sorts where, you know, we needed to renegotiate some of our contracts to fix the trade imbalances? Well, I think it's true that not all global players are playing fair, quote unquote. And it's true that we could have probably been more aggressive in our international negotiations globally in the past to try to maximize uh, the gains for the U.S. Having said all that, however, I, like most international economists, do not believe that a correction was warranted. I actually believe that access to global markets is what really allows countries to grow and to become successful. And if you look at the last 50 years, the countries that have been most successful in climbing out of poverty and in reversing or reducing the number of people who are living in terrible poverty are those that basically took advantage of a more open global trading system, which is mostly countries in Asia. And so 
as someone who cares about the whole world, mm-hmm. I truly do believe that we should continue to open up. Having said that, however, I also believe that we need to protect our most vulnerable. And I'm really curious because you're an economist and I really want to pick your brain on this is, um, I guess, is there a conflict of interests of opening up to the, to the globe and, uh, preserving our, our, you know, domestic economy? Is there a conflict at all? Because it, the, the narrative makes it seem like there's a conflict. Is it just that we are not, um, thinking about the right economic policies domestically to, you know, be aligned with uh, a, a more open global trade? That's a really great question, Sean. And obviously not everyone's going to agree on what the right answer to that is. And certainly it's the case that our current administration has chosen to really describe the world as a zero-sum game. If we reduce imports from some countries, that's got to benefit our population. I would say that it's true for some parts of the U.S. population, but if you add up all the winners and losers, typically the winners are going to outnumber the losers. And so where we made a huge mistake was in not taking care of our losers. And that's not just true in trade. That's true in everything we do. That's true in, you know, technological change is going to eliminate way more jobs going forward than trade ever will. You know, most jobs I actually believe are not going to be lost because of China, but because of robots. And so what we shouldn't be thinking about is blaming some external factor. What we really should be thinking about is how do we train our workforce and protect them by investing in them through health investments and education investments in order to be able to face the future. That's, to me, the right conversation. I see it the same way. I, I just wanted to hear from an economist. <laughs> so let me take a step back. You know, you've been lecturing all around the world, right? And some of the research topics and, and articles and books that you've written about are, are around what you know I, I like to call giving a voice the voiceless around anti-sweatshop policies, women and minorities. I'm curious how much of your interest in these areas led you to go teach around the world or, you know, did your interest increase as you traveled the world and taught around the world and, and saw more problems? Yeah, I think you're right. I think I was interested in basically making the world a better place for lack of, you know, it sounds trite, but it's true. Ever since my early days as at Berkeley as an undergraduate, I, I remember as a Berkeley undergraduate, I took courses in emerging markets, I took a course on China, I took courses on Russia's development or lack of development. And I just became fascinated with the question of 
why do some countries grow faster than others and why are some people wealthier than others? And so I was just fascinated with that. And I wanted to be able to contribute to global progress, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's that kind of beyond yourself sentiment, which led me to study economics and which led me to go to the World Bank and which led me to travel and do these kinds of global studies. It was more, what can I do that will be beneficial that was really motivating me? And that's one of the reasons why in recent years, I've moved into working on environmental issues because even though I was passionate about that from from when I was a child, I think it's even more important now than it was before. All right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Berkeley Haas. Um, You know, I think our listeners are really curious to hear as Haasis and Haasi alums what your ideas and plans are for Berkeley Haas as, as our dean. Yeah, so I, I like to summarize my vision for Berkeley Haas in three words, innovation, inclusion, and sustainability. So let's start with innovation. We are at the epicenter of entrepreneurship and innovation in America, probably also in the world. and. I really want to deepen both the academic offerings as well as co-curricular offerings in that area and take advantage of where we are. We're already in a situation where our students are very involved in startup activities, in innovative activities, but I wanna deepen that even more through offering more courses, through adding more professors, through more programming and through the offering of a a physical space, a hub where our students at Haas can meet up with students on the rest of campus on startup ventures. So that's the first area, innovation entrepreneurship. Second area, inclusion. So this has been a priority of mine for the last several years, diversity, equity, and inclusion even before I stepped foot on the Haas campus as the dean a year and a half ago, that neither Haas nor Berkeley look like the rest of California. We, we are not as diverse. We are not as inclusive as, as we could be. And so we had a lot of work to do. We've done a lot in the last year and a half. We doubled scholarships. We doubled the percentage of underrepresented minority in our full-time program. We appointed a chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer who reports to me. We changed our admission criteria to make it more holistic, to make it emphasize more what you've done personally for furthering diversity goals. Well, we've done a lot of things, but there's a lot more that we could do. My third area, focusing on sustainability, but it's really broader. It's really what I call leveraging the Berkeley advantage, taking advantage of all the strong aspects of the campus, of what Berkeley has to offer in terms of a great law school, a great school of public policy, a great school of public health, and really doing more in terms of integrating our business school students with other programs. And I've been focusing on sustainability simply because 
this is an area that also has tremendous potential, but that has been in some sense neglected. So for example, we have a great joint degree program with the School of Public Health. The Dean of the Law School and I have just gotten together in the last year and a half and have really beefed up our joint degree program, which already exists. We've got some great joint programs with the engineering school. The one area where we should have more is in the area of sustainability because Berkeley in general is a real leader there. And so that's why I'm really emphasizing that but I think we have a lot of potential there in many areas. Now, having said all that, these are my long run goals. In the last three months, we've had to pivot pretty dramatically because of the pandemic and really invest in remote learning. And so in the short run, what we're doing is we're really thinking deeply about what can we do for our students to give them more of the best, in, the most engaging educational experience right now. Mm-hmm. And that is leading us to innovate in unexpected ways that weren't initially part of our long run agenda. I, I do have to ask, you know, to follow up on that, you know, how, how do you personally manage stress and uncertainty as a leader? Yeah, so that's really important. You can't help others if you're not helping yourself first, right? So I think it's extraordinarily important to take care of yourself, to get exercise, have outlets. You cannot work 24-7. You have to do other things. That That's really critical. You need a life. And uh, what message do you have for Haas leaders during these challenging times, aside from, you know, making sure that they have a a healthy work-life balance? This is really catered towards, you know, the the graduates. Berkeley Haas really offers a unique educational experience, which allows us to be a highly rigorous academic entity, one of the most rigorous, challenging ones in the world. So, You understand exactly what it takes to come up with new financial instruments. You know what it takes to put together an ESG portfolio. You understand how to lead effectively. And on the other hand, you're also equipped with a really strong moral compass, a sense of business going just beyond yourself, where Business isn't just about the bottom line. It's really about making the world a better place. And so I think that Haas is able to take these two components, the mission and the rigor, and and package it into a really compelling educational experience. And I think that's what's really valuable. Amazing. I'm going to end the interview with some lightning round questions. Just fun stuff. Uh, this is a personal question. You know, of all the places you've taught and lived in the world, I'm curious if you have a favorite place. There are two places in the world that I love. I love Berkeley, California. I just love it. It's so amazing. I mean, every day at six o'clock, I turn my computer off. I get in the car and I go hike in a different part of the Berkeley and Oakland Hills. And you feel like you're in the mountains, 10 minutes from your house, you're surrounded by stately redwoods and there's no one around except the birds. And you're like, wow, <laughs> I get so lucky. So I love Berkeley, California. And I also really love Paris. Paris is just 
the most magical place in the world. I love it. Is there a particular neighborhood of Paris that you love? I really love the area around the Luxembourg Gardens, the sixth and the seventh, the, the Pantheon Selbonne, the student quarter, the De Magot. It just, it's magical. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book, article, or digital content that you've enjoyed lately? I have lots and lots of books that I love. A book that I read in the last three months that I thought was really good. It's called The Splendid and the Bile, and it is the biography of Churchill's first year in office under the Blitz when the Germans were, were bombing Britain and trying to get them to surrender. Yeah. And it, it was very interesting to read that during this period because in some ways what we're facing is is war and to see kind of the inside scoop on how Churchill approached this, how he found the courage to walk in London at night while the bombs were raining down right next to him is very inspirational. And I found it actually surprisingly high number of parallels to what we're facing right now, particularly as a leader. Very interesting. Do you have a favorite band or genre of music? <laughs> I like all music. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I feel like that's a cop-out answer. That's, that's, that's what I would say. Well, I can tell you one of my favorite moments was in the Greek theater, listening to Santana when the sun was setting. When I think back on some of my happiest moments, listening to Santana in the Greek theater has got to be one of them. I also went to hear Joan Baez in Berkeley when she, uh, you know, when she was still performing. Actually, I went to hear her in San Francisco, come to think of it. So now I'm really dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell you that last summer I was also in Paris and I went to hear Earth, Wind & Fire. They're still wow. performing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have some great hits. So they really do. Speaking of which, actually, one of my most memorable moments was a a concert as well at um at the Greek Theater, right across, right behind Berkeley Haas, which yeah. is so amazing. And it was very surreal because, I mean, the the artists performing. I went with a bunch of classmates on a Saturday after our Saturday cohort class. You know, eight hours of class. We went to this concert and uh, who's performing was this rapper named Big Sean and this uh, DJ named Zed. And it was a very odd mix because, you know, it's two completely different genres of music. But it so happened that I referenced in my Berkeley essay, what is your favorite song? Um, it was uh, it was a song by Big Sean called One Man Can Change the World. And my favorite DJ was Zed. And so to have them play back to back in the Greek theater, you know, right after class at Haas. It was just, it, it was surreal. <laughs> wow. So I can't, I can't wait to go back next May, you know, when we have our commencement uh, to, to, to really just end things off in the Greek theater. Yeah, it's beautiful space, beautiful venue. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much, Dean Harrison, for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the One Haas here at Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player and give us a rating or review. You can also check out more of our content on our website at onehaas.org, where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, go Bears!